as I did in the home of two parents who both attended the University of Texas, it was fairly predictable, I think, that I would be indoctrinated and develop a, a really deep, deep, deep appreciation and admiration for Coach Daryl Royal, the iconic coach of the Texas Longhorns. Now, last weekend, I, I did not, I stayed away from, I didn't talk about the fact of the greatest college football victory in the history of ever last Saturday. But that was awesome. <laughs> Listen, you know, the cool thing about it, I talked to people this week, I even have close, close friends who attended Oklahoma University, and we're praying for them and, you know, God to deliver them from their problems. But I don't care, even if you can't stand the burnt orange and the horns, you had to be happy for Charlie Strong in the lawn. That was an incredible win last week. Incredible. <clears throat> and, of course, this week we, we grieve and mourn the passing of Bevo, but there'll be another one, and uh, the horns will keep on running, I promise you. But, as I said, I grew up, and, and I remember, matter of fact, I remember the last game that Coach Darrell Royal ever stood on the sidelines for the University of Texas. I was a kid growing up in Houston, and I remember crying because when they announced that he was retiring, that meant that I would never be able to play for him. You know, I later discovered there might have been some other reasons why I wasn't going to play major college football, but at the time, it's whatever. You know, I just thought, golly, if he'd just stick around. But I remember part of my indoctrination was one year, I think for Christmas or a birthday, my, my parents gave me a book. This was a published book of quips and quotes of Coach Daryl Royal. And I remember as a kid just reading it cover to cover and, you know, the, the sense of humor that Coach Royal had and the kind of the country colloquialisms and down-home sense of humor. He was an amazing communicator. And all of these colloquialisms and down-homeness couldn't betray the fact of an incredibly razor-sharp mind and the fact that he was just a phenomenal leader of men. And it was one of his most famous quotes that provided the title of this book. And it was a quote that popped up several times throughout his career, but I think the most famous iteration of it would have been in 1969 as the University of Texas was preparing for the 1970 Cotton Bowl that they would play against the Notre Dame Fighting Irish in what would become Coach Royal's third national championship. He was asked by a reporter, Coach Royal, you're fairly known as a conservative offensive guy. You kind of you kind of favor three yards in a cloud of dust, but I'm wondering in the national championship game, do you have anything kind of up your sleeve, any, any tricks or wrinkles that you're going to inject into your offense to throw the fighting Irish off? And Coach Royal famously looked at this reporter and he said, nope, we're going to dance with the one what brung us. We're going to dance with the one what brung us. Now, if you're not familiar with this saying or this expression, it is absolutely words to live by. As a matter of fact, why don't you tell your neighbor right now, dance with the one who brung you. Dance with the one who 
Just tell it. It feels good to say that. When you dance with who brung you, Coach Royal was getting at the fact that nothing threatens success like success. Nothing threatens success like success. That's just kind of a universal law because failure Failure forces us to pick ourselves up by the bootstraps, dust ourselves off, and, you know, get back on that horse again, mister. But success, success can be very, very seductive. Success can sabotage our self-drive. Success can damage the very drive that brought us the success in the first place. For the last few weeks, we've been looking at the life of King David. If you're new around here, I I thought about this a couple of days ago. I thought, man, if somebody walks into Lake Hills Church this weekend for the first time and they look and they see this gold throne, they've got to be thinking, man, what in the world is going on at Lake Hills Church? Is that just something that they have all the time? And no, it's not. We're using this throne as a symbol, as a as a teachable point to get at the fact that every single one of us has a throne in our life. You've got a throne in your life. I've got a throne in my life. And somebody or something sits on the throne of your life. And so we've looked at the life of King David, the second king of Israel, as an example for what God does when he invites us into a relationship and calls us into the process of redefining royalty in our lives. And as we've seen over the last few weeks, David redefined royalty in a powerful way. He grew up in a small little backwater town. He was the youngest of eight sons, kind of forgotten, but God called him out of that obscurity, out of that forgottenness and said, this young boy one day will be the king of my chosen people because of his heart, because of who he is and his character. I'm going to raise him up. And it was that young boy pulled out of obscurity who we all know now went on to kill Goliath with a slingshot. And after that, he became a a renowned musician and poet whose, whose artistry soothed the heart of an anguished king. And he became not only a poet and a musician, but then he went on to incredible military victories and success, and people wrote folk songs about him. They said, Saul has killed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. And then not only was he a military leader, he did indeed become king over Israel. And it was during his reign as king that he amassed an incredible resume, reaching a level of success that no one before or since had ever, ever seen. David was unbelievable, and it's this week that we find David and we pick up his story when he is at the absolute peak of his personal power. Israel has entered into a period of prosperity they'd never known before. He has the entire nation at a time of peace. They're no longer threatened by the Philistines as they were. There are a few skirmishes and battles that they still have to fight. But by and large, David has arrived as a king. And it's during this time that David put it all on the line. It's during this period of incredible success that David jeopardized all of it. I'm talking, of course, about 
David and Bathsheba. Now, Bathsheba's name has become synonymous with adultery or with, you know, the femme fatale, the one who could bring down not only a king, but an entire kingdom. And it's interesting, I think, that the Bible chooses to tell us about Bathsheba because the same Bible that tells us David was a man after God's own heart before he was anointed king and then reiterates that thousand years after he was alive in the New Testament This Bible who lifts David up as an example also chooses to show us the king and the hero's flaws, his faults and his foibles. And and it shows us these things in stark detail. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, the Bible tells the story of David one evening roaming around on the rooftop of his palace. And For those of us who were in Israel last summer, we were there at David's palace, and you can see that it's situated in the city of Jerusalem on a a high point, as you would imagine a palace would be, but it's from that high point that David could have looked down onto other flat-top houses and rooftops, and this particular evening, as he's roaming along the rooftop, he notices a woman bathing on her rooftop, and the Bible tells us that Bathsheba was a woman of unusual beauty, unusual beauty. In the original Hebrew, unusual beauty is translated hot like fire. (laughs) And David not only saw her, he he saw her again, and, and not only was he captivated by her, but he was fascinated by her, and his fascination turned into an obsession, and he commissioned one of his palace runners to go find out the name of the woman who lives at that house. And the runner came back and he said her name is Bathsheba. She is the wife of Uriah, who interestingly enough was one of David's soldiers who at that very moment was out in the field fighting for Israel. We'll come back to that in just a second, but David sends for Bathsheba. He summons her to the palace. Now when the king calls, you go. And Bathsheba came to the palace, and the Bible says that she spent several nights there at the palace with David, and she went back home. And David continued to be obsessed, but he thought, you know what, that's just kind of a passing thing. That was just a little dalliance, if you will, until Bathsheba sent him a note. And she sent word to the king that she was pregnant. And when David read this note in the original Hebrew, his response was translated, rutro. Because David started doing the math, and he said if her husband Uriah is out in the field fighting for Israel for weeks or even months on end, and she delivers a baby eight months or nine months from now, and the neighbors will be able to do the math and know that Uriah wasn't home. So the king developed this incredible plan. He summoned Uriah from the battlefield to come to Jerusalem and give the commander-in-chief a battle report. Give Give me a sit rep. A situation report. And so Uriah comes and he gives this sit rep to King David, and David kind of sort of listens. I'm like, okay, Uriah, thanks. Thank you so much for coming, Uriah. I appreciate that. I tell you what, you know, the afternoon's getting late. You're not going to be able to get back to the battlefield tonight anyway. I'll tell you what you do, Uriah. Since you've been such a good, loyal soldier, you go on home. You just go visit your wife. What'd you say her name was? Bathsheba? What's her name? He goes, no, it's Bathsheba. Oh, Bathsheba, she sounds lovely, Uriah. I tell you what, 
you go home, get cleaned up, have yourself a good meal, see your wife, if you know what I'm saying, and I think you do. You go home and, and see your wife, and then you go back to the battlefield. Uriah leaves the king's chambers. David thinks he's in the clear, because if, if Uriah goes home now, and Bathsheba delivers a baby in eight and a half months, nine months, nobody will be the wiser. Except David wakes up the next morning and he receives word that Uriah did not go home. Uriah instead had spent the night at the doorway to David's palace. And David freaks out. He's like, hey, Uriah, <laughs> come here, bud. I thought we had an understanding. Remember, you were going to go home, get cleaned up, get a nice meal, see your wife, if you know what I'm saying, and I thought you did. But why, why did you not go home, Uriah? And Uriah basically says, my king, that, that would be a dereliction of duty. My men are in the field. How could I go home and enjoy the comforts of my wife and the comforts of home while my men are fighting and risking their lives? Who would do that? And David's like, yeah, really, who would do that? And David commands him to stay in Jerusalem yet another day. And that night he summons Uriah to the king's table for dinner. And he deliberately gets Uriah drunk and intoxicated, hoping that he'll go home that night. But even in a drunken stupor, Uriah would not forsake his calling as a soldier. And he did not go home to see Bathsheba. And so the next morning, David's panicked even more. And so he writes a note to his general, Joab, who is Uriah's commanding officer. And he says, Uriah, take this note to Joab and give it to him. And so Uriah carries this note hands it to Joab. Joab opens the note, and David has written, put Uriah in the front lines of the battle. And when it is raging at its absolute fiercest, with fiercest, withdraw from him so that he will be killed in battle. Joab does exactly what his king has ordered. And Uriah dies in battle. Uriah dies in battle. Bathsheba receives word that her husband has been killed. And the Bible says that she grieved and mourned for an appropriate time. And then David, and then David said, Bathsheba, you're mourning. Come to the palace. Let the king take in this grieving widow. And don't you know that people are like, that David, he is something else. Did you see what he did? That poor woman just lost her husband and David has brought her into the palace. David, you're my boy. <laughs> and she gives birth to a child that is not her husband Uriah's, but is David's. Now, that's the story of David and Bathsheba and how it happened. But it's fascinating to me how quickly we can get obsessed with kind of the TMZ details of David and Bathsheba. Like, oh, I can't believe that that happened. I can't believe David did that. And to be true, it is sordid and it is sleazy. But I think there's an even more important question to get at. How do we, how do we figure out how David arrived there? Because we remember, he was a man after God's own heart. So how did he get to the place where he could make this happen? Nobody just falls into murder and adultery. Nobody just wakes up one day and goes, you know what, I'm going to blow up my family, somebody else's family, and then if somebody finds out about it, I'm going to kill them. That is not an overnight decision. That is the result 
of a series of small choices and decisions and compromises and ethical cutting of corners that lead to chaos and destruction. And that's exactly what David did. I think it's fascinating the way the Bible tells this story in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. It's absolutely incredible the level of detail that the Bible, divinely inspired, chooses to share with us about David. It says this, In the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites, and they destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, at first, that seems like a very, very innocent sentence. You just, it's, it's, it's almost like a, a geography point to the story. It's like, okay, David's in, Jer in Jerusalem. But what did it say at the very, very beginning? It was in the spring, at the time of year when kings go off to war. You see, David's problem was not Bathsheba. David's problem was David. David was not where David was supposed to be. This is a pattern that I have noticed in my own life, that I, don't, I rarely ever get into trouble when I'm going after what God has called me to. When you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, you don't have time, energy, or anything to do what you're not supposed to be doing. David stayed behind in Jerusalem. He stayed behind in Jerusalem. You know, <clears throat> for the last couple of years, my son Joseph and I have gotten to go elk hunting in Colorado, which is just an incredible experience. We, I've never, never done anything or seen anything like that. And Joseph and I kind of refer to this now as our meet for the winter trip. For the family, we're willing to do that. You know what I'm saying? So we, we did this, and last year, Joseph harvested a really nice bull elk. It was, we were all excited about it. It was cool, and it was so exciting. We, we couldn't wait to, to get, you know, the meat for, back from the processor for, from this elk. And, you know, we've been longtime whitetail hunters and, and have hunted, and, but we didn't really understand or know what to expect in terms of quantity of meat that an elk produces, Elk is a big, big animal. And so we said, you know what, we'll take half of the elk for ourselves and then donate the other half to a Hunters for the Hungry program there in Colorado. And I'll never forget the day that this shipment of elk meat arrived at our doorstep. There were boxes upon boxes, of, I mean, hundreds of pounds of meat, of half of the elk. We were so excited, man. That day, pulled out some of the sausage, some of the backstrap, and fried up some of the backstrap, grilled some of the tenderloin. She's unbelievable. Then we put the rest in the freezer, of course, for the winter. Well, it was about a month later that we had been out of town, and, and we came home, and we raised the door on the garage, and as soon as the garage door came up, there was just this horrific odor radiating out of our garage. You kind of know where this is going already. And sure enough, our freezer, which is in the garage, the plug that it's attached to, the breaker had tripped while we had been out of town. And so that freezer had been without power for who knows how long. 
all of that elk meat had thawed and gone bad while we were out of town because of this power failure. It, it, was, it was awful. I hated that Joseph had to clean that up, but, <clears throat> but it was because of that power failure that we lost everything we had stored up in that freezer. King David almost lost everything he had been storing up from a lifetime of following God, God because of a similar power failure. The same power that David used to kill Goliath, that God would use to soothe Saul and to withstand Saul's attack and assassination attempt on his life, the same power that David had put to use as a general in Saul's army, as the king over Israel, all of it almost brought not only David's life, not only David's family, but the kingdom of Israel crashing down around him because of this power failure. And it's a power failure that I think we would all recognize, not only in David's life, but maybe from our lives or others that we have seen, that is absolutely avoidable. And so just very quickly, I want to just give you three C's of a power failure of a power failure that doesn't have to be. The first C of David's power failure is the power failure of comfort. Comfort. It says, at a time of the year when kings go off to war, David chose the comfort of the palace over his calling to the battlefield. David decided, you know what, things are pretty good. Joab is an awesome general. He can take care of the battles this spring. But I'm going to hang back in the palace. I'm going to hang back. And David chose comfort over his calling. And I think it's important for us to know that when God places a calling on your life, when he shows you what he wants you to do and where he wants you to be as a man, as, as a woman, as a student, as a husband or a wife, when he gives you that calling, it is never a calling to comfort or to just kind of chillax. But it was that comfort that David chose over his calling. And it was that comfort that created this incredible disconnect. But that was just the beginning because David's comfort also gave birth to complacency. It was complacency. His whole life, David had been engaged in the good fight, sometimes literally a fight with Goliath or the Philistines or other enemies of Israel, but it was always about his calling to the good fight that God had placed before him throughout his life, for his life. But this particular spring, David chose to kind of look around and go, you know what, things are pretty good. See, what was David saying? He was going, I'm not going to dance with who brung me. Nothing threatens success like success. When you achieve, when you realize incredible success personally or even spiritually, the temptation is to lose the edge that created that success in the first place. And that's exactly what David did this spring. David never should have been on that rooftop. 
He never should have even known that Bathsheba existed, much less her name or her address or anything else. But it was because of comfort and then complacency. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know what? I know what that's like. I mean, we've all experienced certain degrees of success and kind of went, man, this is great. Things are going really well. Maybe you've experienced success as a parent. And as a parent, you kind of go, man, our kids are doing great. They're, they're in a great place right now. Kindergarten is awesome. Way to go. Good luck. Right if you get work. And that complacency can creep in and dull the edge that created the success in the first place. But that complacency can turn into also congratulations. Self-congratulations. I don't think we're, now we don't have a, a particular Bible verse to refer to on this one, but I don't think we're out too far on a limb to say that as David walked around his palace rooftop that night, he had to have at least realized things were good. That he was the king over Israel in a period of unparalleled success, prosperity, peace. He was the king. He had led the battles that had achieved this prosperity and peace. He wasn't dumb. He, he knew that good things had happened. And there was at least a part of him that said, you know what? I deserve to stay back in the palace this spring. I've worked hard to get to this place. And and I, I've earned a little rest. And I don't need any more parades or songs written about me, but I'm just going to kind of give myself a little pat on the back, a little congratulations. And I'm going to hang out here in the palace. And it's in that power failure when, when we choose comfort over our calling and we slide into complacency or maybe even that self-congratulatory mode that we are at our absolute most vulnerable it's at that time that we can absolutely threaten all of what we have stored up over a lifetime. And so we've got to be careful. Success is the greatest personal challenge you will ever face, spiritually, emotionally, or relationally, ever. Now, success is good. I'm a fan of winning. Winning is good. Winning according to how God describes success and winning However, it's when we win that we've got to be careful. And so if I can just real quickly, I, I want to just mention to you three things to, to, to maintain your power lines, to, to keep the power flowing, a, a power line maintenance plan and program. In, in, instead of comfort, I want you to think about how God would choose to respond and have you respond to your success. I think to get at that, you can look at something that God included in the biblical record in Psalm 138. God said, in Jerusalem, I will increase the power of David. My anointed one will be a light for my people. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but he will be a glorious king. Now, this is God talking here. So you can be sure that God knew when he was talking about David, this was the same David that had been derelict in his duties, who had not gone to battle, not gone to war. 
David who had chosen to take that second and third glance at Bathsheba. David who, David who had chosen to feed his obsession with Bathsheba, summoned her to the palace, committed adultery, sent her back home, had her husband killed to cover up the adultery. And yet God says he will be a glorious king. There's a part of me that looks at that and it's like, like hey God, I'm respectfully, do what? I mean, David, David, I mean, he flat out messed up. But there are principles at play here that go beyond, as I said, the TMZ details. First of all, instead of comfort, embrace the struggle. Embrace the struggle and realize the fact that we're created to work and produce. All of us, physically, emotionally, spiritually, we need that. Because we're created in the image of God and God works. So we need that. Instead of thinking, you know what, I want to just cash out before I'm 50 years old or whatever goal line you give yourself. Embrace the struggle. I've got a very close friend who lives in another city. And a, over a decade ago, he and his family sold their family business and made a killing. Had a great, what they call a liquid event. And he decided that he was going to spend the rest of his days playing golf and hanging out. And for about 18 months, he loved it. He loved it. It was all, he was like, man, biggest problems I have are tea times and weather. <laughs> and I know that some of his friends were kind of looking at him going, what's that like? Can, it, just, can I just, just tell me, what's that like? But after about 18 months, 20, 24 months, he was miserable. We're created for more than tea times and good weather. We're created to produce and to work. And the sooner we embrace that struggle, now we need to have time to rest. Obviously, God commands one day a week, chill out, worship. Focus on me and recharge your batteries. That's called the Sabbath. And then sometimes you need to, to get away and unplug, recharge. The Old Testament, there are multiple commandments to do no work and to celebrate God. But ultimately, you got to embrace the struggle. When God calls us to redefine royalty and to be his hands and feet in this world, we got to know that that's not a call to comfort. It's a call to work. And it's a call to engage with God in the most important stuff there is. And you can do that in any way, shape, or form. If you're a stay-at-home mom, you're changing the world. If you're selling software and engaging with people, you can be changing the world right where you are. If God calls you to be a missionary in Papua New Guinea, you can be changing the world. But wherever you are, man, embrace the struggle. Just go, you know what, let's go, strap it on, here we go. It's part of it. Let, let comfort take care of itself later. When we get to heaven, we can be incredibly comfortable in heaven. But in this life, created in the image of God, embrace the struggle. Make sure that you understand that's, that's okay. That's a really, really good thing. Second of all, instead of complacency, move the chains. Move the chains. If you achieve something, you get a first down in life, chains move. Football teams, when they, when they get the ball on first down, it's first and 10. 
Let's say that they achieve that 10-yard goal. They don't just throw up their hand, woo, we win. No, you move the chains and go get another 10 yards. You score a touchdown, that's great. Get on the field, keep your opponent from scoring a touchdown. But you've got to move the chains. David didn't move the chains. You see, David, when he was roaming the rooftop of his palace that night that he saw Bathsheba, he was basking in the glow of his success. He, he was acting as if he had arrived. Remember that Bruce Springsteen song, Glory Days? Glory Days. Pass you by in the wink of a young girl's eye. I mean, nothing sadder than seeing a 46-year-old man who still wears his letter jacket from high school. That's pitiful. Let it go. You just walk up to that guy, hey, bro, move the chains. You've reached a certain point spiritually. You, for some of you, you're coming to church, and that is a massive, massive win. You've overcome so many hurdles to walk in the doors. That's great. Awesome. Okay? Move the chain. Some of you are here very consistently, and you serve, and you're engaging your kids in the life of the church. That's awesome. Move the chains. What's next? This is not discontentment. This is not perfectionism. This is walking with God and always taking what he has in store for us. Because the beautiful thing about a relationship with Christ is you never get to the bottom of him. You never arrive spiritually. You experience peace. You experience, you experience grace, amazing grace. You experience contentment, but you never arrive. There's so much more of God that I, I don't even know about yet. I'm not even smart enough to ask for but I'm going to move the chains and keep going. Move those chains. And then number three, celebrate your wins and then move on. Celebrate your wins, but move on. David's self-congratulations cost him a great deal. It cost him a great deal. It almost cost the entire nation of Israel. Because when the leader falls, the entire team is threatened. You got to dance with the one who brung you. You got to realize that nothing threatens success like success. Now, David and Bathsheba is not the feel-good hit of the summer. It's not one of those uplifting stories where we go, boy, that was fun. Love talking about the king messing up. But it's important that you understand David's sin with Bathsheba, David's sin over Uriah, the cover-up, all of those things are not the end of the story. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 12, David's confronted with his sin. Almost a year, most scholars agree, a year after David first slept with Bathsheba, the prophet Nathan approaches the king, and he says, King, if it pleased the king, I want to tell you a story. There was a wealthy man who had a visitor show up on his doorstep unannounced. And this wealthy man had many, many, many flocks of sheep and goats, and he had a neighbor who only had one sheep, a little female ewe sheep. 
And this wealthy man who had an unexpected guest, rather than taking one of his own, of his many flocks, decided instead to take the one sheep from his neighbor to feed his unexpected guest. He said, you're the king. Tell me what you think should happen to this wealthy host. And David was outraged. He said, are you kidding me? That wealthy man who had thousands of sheep and goats who stole his neighbor's only one to feed to an unexpected guest, that man should be killed. He's a reprobate. And Nathan risked his own life speaking truth to power. And he said, David, you are that man. That one lone sheep of the poor neighbor is Bathsheba. You took her. You had everything that God could ever have given you, and you took her. And I believe that it's here that you see why David remained and remains a man after God's own heart. Because the Bible says that David replied, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. He didn't try to rationalize it. He didn't try to justify it. He didn't say, oh, Nathan, you have no idea the pressure I'm under. Everybody needs a hobby. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, there absolutely were consequences to David's sin. But at that moment, David was forgiven. David was forgiven because of who God is, because of how he operates. This same God who anointed David, who called him and chose him, is the one who sent Jesus, his only son, to provide and to offer forgiveness for you and me. God who put David on the throne of Israel is the same God who invites you and me into a relationship with himself. That's why the Bible says in the New Testament in 1 John chapter 1, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we confess our sins. If we confess our sins to the only one who has the authority to forgive us, he will. He will. If we confess our sins, he will. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And as you do, I want to invite you to really and truly consider this promise that God forgives what we confess. To know that it's real because it's in that confession of our sin that relationship with God is restored. And it's through confession and the amazing grace that God offers in his forgiveness 
that we're restored into that relationship with him that we're created for in the first place. And when that relationship is restored, that's what allows us to be able to come back to God, to worship him, to worship him as, as David worshiped him, to lift up a song of praise, to lift up a song of worship, to lift up our very own hallelujah. It's a call. 
spirit of prayer it can be heavy when you talk about sin it can be weighty but I think it's that weightiness and that heaviness that's real that we ought to acknowledge so that we can recognize just how truly amazing God's grace actually is to understand that it's available that he is accessible if you're here today and you've never stepped into a relationship with God you've maybe played at religion or church before but you've never really and truly experience what it means to know God. There is nothing that we would rather do as a church than help you experience that. Help you step into that. Our service is going to end in just a moment and before it does, I want to just tell you if you're here today and you would like to know what it means to be a Christian, to follow Christ. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the program that everybody should have gotten when you came in and open it up. And there's a place in there that said the connect card. It's called the connect card. Fill it out. Give us a, a way to contact you this week. And then indicate there, I'm, either I'm committing my life to Christ or I want to talk to somebody about being a Christian. And then tear that off at the perforation. And before you leave today, just hand that to one of our ushers who's in, a, in an LHC shirt. Or as you walk out the door here to your right from where you're sitting right now, that big porch and patio that you came in, there's an awning out there, kind of a little canopy that says LHC.org on it. And just hand that Connect card to somebody who's there. And this week we will do everything we can to help explain that and, and show you what that looks like. That's why we're here. That's what this is all about, is that personal connection with God and being a part of what he calls this royal priesthood. If you're here today and you think, man, I'm beyond the reach of God's grace, just look at David. 
If you're here today and you think, I don't know if God could really do that in my life, trust me, you're seated amongst people who know that he can and he does. And we'd love to share that with you. I want to just tell you thank you for making weekend worship a priority. Everyone who's chosen to be here today and choosing to walk with God and choosing to be a part of the family of faith, it's fun to get to do it with you.